Hi there and welcome to The Brave, the podcast about the people, companies and systems building a better future. I'm your host Beth and Vincent and I'm the managing partner of Open Velocity. We're a marketing strategy consultancy and we essentially started this podcast because we're fascinated with change and with the role of technology in change and bringing forward a better future for everyone. And this week we're talking about education and the role of technology in education and how that's changing from online to the classroom. And this is a subject that actually I personally find extremely fascinating because I think I can confidently say that I'm one of the first cohort of uh, people who truly grew up with technology in the classroom. So from kind of reception, age kind of four and five, when I entered into school, we had a computer in our classroom. It was one of those, uh, I think, kind of Apple, big, chunky kind of Apple um, computers. Uh, I truly remember kind of going on those. And actually, I spent a lot of my time playing computer games on them and not necessarily doing kind of schoolwork, but that's just an insight into me. And on the show, I wanted to get Maury Shank. Now, Maury is the CEO and founder of LearnerShape, which is dedicated to improving lifelong learning through technology. And in this episode, we we chat about kind of a range of topics, actually. Firstly, kind of lifelong learning and the role of that and why it's becoming more important as, you know, the job market changes, technology changes, the type of work available. Um, We're we're all going to have to learn and adapt. And already, I think I can see this in my career, you know, as a marketeer, a lot of the tools, a lot of the technologies I was using five years ago have massively changed. Cough, cough, Google Analytics, which is migrating from GA3 to <laughs> Google Analytics 4, which is causing me a world of pain at the moment. But there we are. That, that, that could be a whole other episode if anyone's super interested <laughs> in my thoughts on GA4. But anyway, so we chat about lifelong learning. We chat about how kind of educational institutions are having to adapt as well and move away from almost Victorian methods of teaching to embracing technology and then finally we move on to AI and how AI is changing education and this is a really important topic we're we're discussing AI a lot on the podcast at the moment actually because it is happening the AI revolution is here Um, and especially changes in generative AI like ChatGPT they're really actually affecting um, things like homework you know what what do you do in a world where actually you set someone to write an essay and they can just go and get ChatGPT to write it within 10-20 seconds what does that mean How, how do we adapt to that so I hope you will enjoy this episode. I loved making it. Maury was a fantastic guest. We'll get stuck right in. Well, hi, Bethann. I'm Maury Shank. I'm founder and CEO of LearnerShape, which is building the world's leading open source learning infrastructure. And I'm also director and general counsel of PeopleSir, which is a fast-growing company uh, that delivers global testing and certification services in pretty much every country. Brilliant. And we're here to kind of talk about, the, I guess, the future of education and technology's role to play in that. And I don't know, my my kind of view is we're still in lots of places, especially kind of mainstream education, using a model of education that's Victorian, in essence. You know, let's go to school, do, you know, however many years, I think it's 10 years at school, go to, you know, college, university, and then from there. But I think lifelong learning is a real kind of passion of yours. So, why 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 lifelong learning i guess what's the kind of need for it what why should we not well think that education ends at 16 or 18 or 21 things are changing a lot in the world as you probably noticed and there's a, there's a professor at london business school called linda gratton who's written a book called the 100 year life which talks about how longer lives are changing jobs 
you know, at the same time, there's, there's faster change, there's less job security, and you really need lifelong learning to, to deal with it. From the model of 50 years ago, when you would have a job, one job for life, it doesn't work anymore. And so we need it to enable the way our society works now. Definitely. And I think also the types of work we're doing are changing, even even in the field I work in, the type of work I do is much more, I guess, kind of it's knowledge work, isn't it? It's less kind of manual inputs. It's actually the creativity that sits behind that. And I guess, how can um, education be changed to mould people into the type of worker that's required for the 21st century? So this is what I'm fascinated about. You said, well, we're still using antiquated learning methods. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, so there's a great book, which I have beside me called Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning by Audrey Waters. And she described, it's about in the 1950s and 1960s, how there was a revolution in teaching machines, which they look antiquated to us now, but maybe our machines will look antiquated in another 60 or 70 years. So and, and she also makes the point that things have been changing over time. It's not Victorian. It's still traditional. And I actually like the traditional learning environment. I, I think the best learning environment remains where you have a small group of learners with a motivated teacher and it's a tremendous learning experience or learning in the course of doing. I had a slide deck at one point where I you know, had a, the caveman with his spear. I mean, you learn to, you learn to hunt. By, by going out there and hunting. So those traditional learning experiences, I think are still great. The opportunity is to use technology to uh, scale them and enhance them. And so some of the things that I'm working on at LearnerShape, we're trying to develop some uh, microservices that you can combine into customized learning applications. At PeopleCert, we're delivering um, qualifications at scale to individuals for very discrete sets of knowledge. I, I think uh, we need the market to innovate those kind of solutions. And is, is that kind of linked to, I guess, personalization? Because I guess that's the other, you know, I, I say Victorian kind of tongue in cheek, but also I remember literally as a child going on a school trip to a Victorian classroom and thinking they're doing the same stuff in here as we're doing. They've just got slate and we've got paper. Um, but it, as those kind of small groups environments are very good but still people learn in different ways we know this obviously and the classroom environment is one way of imparting knowledge so do you think the personalization is about personalization of curriculum but also learning styles or is that kind of a silly question I guess no it's a great question I mean I think it's all of the above and that's that's the big I think that's a big opportunity so that's what learner shape is about we're using AI so our, our most important open source library that we have, and we have a few of them, is about using AI to be able to recommend any content for any skill and, and uh, making that service available in a way that you can build it into any application. So we believe personalization is, is key. There are companies out there, there are a lot of players who are developing personalized learning applications for, for companies, for learning at school, there, Century um, is a good UK company that has a schools-based personalized learning application. Um, there is, um, you know, there's lots of corporate learning applications like that. So I think personalization is a huge opportunity. 
we haven't quite cracked how to make you know what the killer app is for personalization but i think we will i think we will keep getting better and, and keep taking that traditional victorian experience and making it better because it would be interesting to have a system that almost kind of you maybe did some modules on it and it worked out which ones you engage with the most and which maybe style of presentation of information you engage with the most and recommended you more of those. I think that, well, personally, I think that could be quite cool. I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, there are a big history in what's called adaptive learning where you take, you learn something and then you get quizzed on it. And then if you know it, it kind of moves past that onto something that you don't know. And, and focuses you on the stuff you really need to learn. So there's companies like Area 9, which are uh, good players in that for lifelong learning. Century here in the UK, which I mentioned before, is uh, does that for K to 12, and I think a little bit for university. So, and then your idea of doing it for different learning styles, I think is really interesting. We, at Learnership, we talk about skills, but we try to define skills super broadly, like anything a human, could be able to do. And so it gets to things like learning styles. And I think you eventually want to be able to recommend content that works for different learning styles, different kinds of content as well. Yeah, because it's, again, from my own personal experience, you know, there's been an explosion, obviously, in video learning content and YouTube. Now you can go on, you can go on YouTube and learn any skill if you kind of have the patience to sift through the information. But I personally find video content, I don't I don't engage with it very well. <laughs> I'd mm. much rather read something. So there's this kind of shift going towards everyone's producing video content, but there's probably a cohort of users left behind who are like, actually, this doesn't really work for me. You know, I want a book. I want, you know, paper, words and that that kind of stuff. And it, it, is that something you're seeing at all in the work you're doing with that there's certain kind of trends that people are moving towards in terms of how content, learning content is presented to people? Yes, absolutely. And video content, as you say, is a huge trend. I think YouTube is now the world's largest learning platform. And we have a new initiative where we're trying to build something involving YouTube. We haven't even approached them yet. Um, YouTube, if you're listening, we have a great idea. You had it first. Um, <laughs> right. But um, the other one that we've been interested in is VR, AR, you know, immersive learning. And particularly in the corporate uh, environment, there are a lot of companies that are starting to develop learning applications where you can actually do the thing in a virtual environment. I personally am like you. I like reading stuff. And we tried to design the learner shape tech so it can rep recommend any kind of any kind of content that you can describe. So we use large language models. So it's textual, the analysis. but you can do a transcript of a video. Uh, VR and AR is a little more complicated, but you can at least describe it. We could recommend your podcast by you know, doing an automatic tra automated transcript and then using the AI to figure out that we're talking about education and not you know, rocket ships or something. That's quite cool, actually, that, that kind of, I guess, the technology layer transforming the information into or presenting it in the way the end user, and that is personalization, isn't it? You know? transforming that information and one of the things that quite interests me is your kind of use of AI so you say you're using kind of natural language models to to understand the contextualized content are the, if you're okay to talk about it what are the other kind of applications of AI that either you see in your own kind of product or service or in the wider market well there's a great book about AI uh, called prediction machines that basically says AI is prediction 
And that was before the generative wave that we've had with things like Dolly and ChatGPT. So a lot of the stuff we're doing is that more traditional AI is a prediction machine and we're predicting content. We're saying, predicting jobs, you know, if I have mm -hmm. these skills, what job is right for me? If I'm hiring for this job, what set of what set of skills uh, fit with that? Uh, so there's a lot of predictive learning applications. People are getting now interested in generative applications. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with Azim Azar, who's a British blogger. Yeah, Exponential uh, View. Exponential View, and he's. Um, He's a friend of mine as well, but he he also has been right. He's been writing stuff recently about his use of ChatGPT and how it can be used as a prompt. He used it to design to design a board game, for example, and he's got a great recent blog about that. Uh, and so, there's also people saying ChatGPT is is very dangerous to education. I'm in the camp that says that there's much more opportunity mm. than um, than threat. So. There's those prediction applications and there's the generative applications. And I think we're in really early days of this. We're maybe a decade into the new AI revolution and we're just starting to figure out what this tech is able to do. Yeah, because I guess it, it kind of cascades everywhere because one of the big things that comes to my mind is, you know, your education is about equipping people with the skills for living a good life, but also to equip them to be economically active in a workforce. And you can see with ChatGPT, it's going to fundamentally change a lot of jobs, but we don't yet know fully the impact of that. And I guess the pace of change in education is a bit of an issue because how do you upskill a workforce for a technology that we don't even fully understand or know what's going to happen with it. And it seems like the markers in the sand are always shifting. So again, like, how, do you think there's a kind of correct response from education in terms of this, or is it we're just going to constantly have to be iterating and changing how we teach people? That's a really hard question. I think, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's a correct, correct response uh, mm. because we don't know what the future holds and things seem to be, moving faster and faster. And it scares, uh, I'm a young guy, but I'm pretty AI enabled and I feel that I get on with change. But um, sometimes the change feels scary and you wonder how much faster can we move? Um, I do think what, I, I think the scary pace of change can't keep accelerating. And, but it's going to keep, it's going to keep being fast. And so we, we do need to find ways for AI to make us more adaptive. Back to your first question, you know, lifelong learning, uh, micro learning mm. for people who are changing jobs more often and for jobs that are changing more, we need to improve the methods for that. And they are, they're emerging. Those new methods are emerging. But like in other sectors, you know, I mentioned rocket ships, like Elon Musk is building better, much better rocket ships now. We can do the same in education. Yeah, and I think also what's been interesting from my perspective, speaking to people who are trying to employ people with kind of cutting edge skills. So, you know, I'm talking about developers in particular, some of their challenges isn't getting people who know the latest language because that can be taught. Like they recognize that can be taught quite quickly. You know, someone can pick that up and run with it. If they know Python, they can go and learn R. Um, but one of the big challenges is almost kind of, I guess people call them soft skills. That's the bro I think core skills is the more kind of correct terminology, but teaching people things like how to think and how to be part of a team. 
And that almost seems like that's never going to go away. That's a foundational thing we need to teach people. But I think the challenge is education, as I understand it and went through it, didn't. It taught you facts. So I guess to wrap this up into a question, you know, do any does any of your work touch on teaching those kind of core skills to people? Is that a need you see in the market? I do see the need. Absolutely. I don't think it, it's not a new need. And people have mm. been talking for a few I think probably a few decades ago, people started talking about T-shaped people. So yeah. who are very broad, have a lot of general skills, but are deep in one area. And I think this has always been necessary. Um, maybe it's more necessary in a fast moving workplace and, um, you know, and ways are emerging to teach it. It is not what we do. We, um, we recommend content rather than delivering content uh, at LearnerShape. At PeopleCert, we test in rather specific areas, which are business and IT skills and languages. So it isn't the area I, that I'm in, but there are people who are doing it. And I think we, like other, like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of the old stuff is good, but I think we can improve it with technology, including with AI. Yeah. And, and just a, two threads there. So the AI and the testing. So obviously one of the big things is ChatGPT um, being used to write at home assignments and do homework for people. So it, it, again, is that something you're concerned about at all from a testing point of view? Or do you think it's just going to push people towards more kind of, I guess, um, tight testing where it's not a take home exercise it's a you sit in exam room or a virtual exam room and you do it there and there's some kind of verification that you haven't used AI much more the latter than the former I mean I think chat GPT will change things it makes it much easier to cheat on essays in a way that's not detectable as as plagiarism but so there's a, the obvious solution is prove it's a human doing it and one way will be to sit in a classroom. There will be other ways that will emerge to do that. That's something um, that we're thinking about at PeopleCert, where what we do, mm. we give you know hundreds of thousands of tests. And so we're good at determining that it's a who, who we're testing. And we, we, we get people trying to cheat on our tests. Um, you know, uh, it's a human there, but it's not the human who's actually supposed to be taking the test. So we're quite good at determining uh, that it's a human, but that it's the right human. And I think uh, things will come out um, that improve the ability to do that. So chat GPT is a threat, but it's more of an opportunity than it, than a threat. Yeah. And I guess a plagiarism point is interesting because is it plagiarism if it's written, it's an original text, right? But it's, it's drawing on sources. And I guess I'm kind of, I'm going into a kind of legal knowledge there a little bit, but do you think, I guess, the legal frameworks around what is plagiarism, what is cheating also need to catch up with the technology? Absolutely. So I'm an investor in a company called Autogen AI, which is using, uh, it's actually GPT-3, I believe, which is a predecessor of ChatGPT, but it will keep being augmented to deliver content for improving tender writing. And so that big companies use it to, uh, facilitate the process of writing tenders for uh, big contracts. We've been looking at the question, you know, when we're producing this using large language models, um, is there a risk that of, you know, somebody saying you're infringing the training content that was used for those models? 
And there's starting to be all kinds of cases like that. Somebody just showed that Dolly, um, the image generator, reproduces a lot, can be reproduced images that are a lot like the input images of the artist. And there's all kinds of lawsuits starting about this. So this is an important area. And I think we've got many years, maybe decades of fights over this coming up. Good time for lawyers then. <laughs> good time for lawyers. I think it's good time to be alive in general. AI is fascinating. So, Yeah, definitely. And it, it, for, me, for me also, it's the, the risk of the output. So you can't always, it's a fact-checking issue, isn't it? That the outputs are often incorrect, especially with ChatGPT. They're often kind of incorrect and um, it can make up information. So let's say you were using it to write a homework assignment. It's really then hard to fact-check actually what it said is true unless you do the work of going in and looking at all the sources. Well, you might as well have written the essay at that point anyway. Yeah, and there's some and there's some software coming in, out that you know tries to detect whether something was written by an AI. Um, there is this question: Is the will the AIs get better? They will get better. Um, although there are some constraints because ChatGPT is already trained on most of the good content of the internet, so there are limits to this. And as a friend of mine recently said, at some point it starts to eat its. Uh, yeah. Actually, it was our head of data science at LearnerShape who said this. At some point, it starts to eat its tail because a lot of the content that's out there in the internet will be produced by these large language models. So there's Gary Marcus is a big critic of these uh, and, and suggests that there's a limit to how good they can get. So it's um, it's a fascinating area. Yeah. And also, if, if they're fed by... <laughs> it's the interesting thing with Google in particular, because if you know Google Google search is fed by people writing articles to be surfaced so that they get the click and they get the view. But if no one's incentivized to add new information to it, as you say, the model completely becomes stale and it becomes disconnected with new from new information sources. But anyway, sorry, this is like a thread I could pull on all day because I find it fascinating. And th there's one aspect of education I wanted to talk about where I think technology really does have a role to play, and that's around the cost, right? You know, we've seen student debt across both sides of the pond mount up and become frankly unsustainable from a pure kind of like governmental economic perspective as well. I think the UK government is having to look <laughs> look very deeply and kind of harder itself about how it's going to fund student debt in, in years going forward. So do you, can you see technology really making education affordable? Because we've had things like MOOCs in the past that were good, but never really kind of took off. So do you think there's kind of a next stage in technology? I guess it's reducing the cost of providing quality education. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, and you say MOOCs never took off. I mean, people were disappointed. At, people thought MOOCs were going to take over the world. But they've done, there are some fantastic MOOCs out there, things you can learn really cheaply. And maybe they haven't replaced the university model. And they're expensive for universities to do compared to things that they can charge for. But they have democratized education to a certain extent. And I think we're going to continue in that direction. There's some, some U.S. universities that are leading the way on this, places like Arizona State University and Northeastern University that, have a, that are exploring digital curricula, uh, larger num reaching larger number of students at lesser costs. I think that's going to happen. There were, there were some people who predicted that the whole elite university model would sort of be appended by, well, first by MOOCs and then the pandemic. That hasn't happened. 
and I'll tell you why it hasn't happened is their their revenue streams are tied to exclusivity. I'm I happen to be a graduate of Harvard University and Stanford Law School, and those places, you know, I learned they were great places to learn. Uh, but a lot of the stuff I use now is not stuff I learned there. It's things that I learned on the job. But the networks of Harvard and Stanford are still extremely valuable to me. And these be, these universities will continue to sell exclusivity like that. But that doesn't mean that for the masses, um, and and by the masses, I don't mean people in lower paid jobs. I mean for lots of people, there are ways to learn. And I through life, I, I take a lot of courses and learn stuff at a very low cost in MOOCs. So I think, yes, it can help. It won't help immediately. The big universities are not going to stop charging the big fees. There's not an obvious solution for that, but but technology is helping. And I, I guess also, the, I completely hear you on the benefit. You know, that that's one of the big benefits of me going to university is the kind of network I've got out of it. But it was also the experience of being in a seminar room and, and debate and actually interacting with other people around the learning information and I think that's the challenge of these online platforms yes they try and facilitate that in chat but it's not the same as you know having to hash out an argument in front of your supervisor who's going to tear you down (laughs) and and, uh, totally agreed with that I think that is where technology can do better but we really haven't done it yet that traditional learning experience we really haven't cracked the nut of how to do that in the online environment, but I think we can. I think uh, when we have this conversation in 50 years, if, if I'm still alive, I hope I will be, uh, that it will look very different. Yeah, that, I, you can almost imagine having, a, you know, a kind of embedded AI assistant that's personalized to you, you know, it's trained on you and your information and it is giving you that critique. And I think that's what, um, Azim in Exponential View he was doing he was saying he was using ChatGPT as almost a kind of foil for his own thought process and you know almost like a bit of a research assistant tied with an editorial kind of critique and I thought that was quite interesting and to have that embedded and accessible at any time you know almost like your supervisor in a box you can go to and ask a question it'll be like well have you thought about this and actually you know this is incorrect that could be so powerful and very exciting. I totally agree. And I think there's, you know, some things that have already happened that we've all gotten used to are making these things easier, like Zoom, you know, so that you can have remote, you know, maybe it's associated with an institution, but you can have remote interactions more easily. Social networks have made group forming uh, better, a lot of meetup groups. I'm currently learning Greek because PeopleCert is based in Greece, and I'm having a conversation with a woman in Athens where she wanted to learn English and I want to learn Greek. So I write to her in Greek and she writes to me in English. And we were connected through a site called The Mixer that's existed for, I think, over a decade. But um, so these things are happening. And piece by piece like that, we will build up solutions, uh, digital solutions that can improve education. Yeah. Agreed. It's a yeah, exciting time as well. Thank you so much for coming on. That was an extremely interesting uh, conversation for me. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, your kind of companies, your work, where would be the best place for them to go? Uh, they can. You can find me on LinkedIn, Maury Shank. I publish some stuff there. And also our learnershape.com. We have a blog where a lot of my thinking is usually written on the Learnershape blog. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll add those links to the show notes for anyone listening. Thank you so much, Beth. And it's, uh, I love talking about this stuff. 
Thanks to Maury for coming on the show. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. And I think there's so much more we could unpack here and future episodes will definitely kind of return to the themes of education and technology. Now, if you enjoyed the show, I would be so grateful if you liked and subscribed or reviewed and subscribed. Sorry, this isn't YouTube. (laughs) If you gave us a review and subscribed, you'll get all of our episodes. We also have a newsletter as well called The Brave, which is over on Substack. And if you're interested in the types of themes we explore, here we explore that more in written form over on substack and you also get email notifications every time a new episode is released and finally if you want to find out more about open velocity and the type of work we do and how we work with companies to help them build better marketing engines please head over to openvelocity.co.uk and with that i'll leave you there have a fantastic rest of your day